If you've got a Bible, please do turn to the passage that was just read to us in Ephesians or from Ephesians chapter 3. And I just want to tease open uh, a few of those things that St. Paul highlights in that prayer. At the heart of it, he prays that we will have love at the heart of us. That's what really matters, that in our Christian life, in our Christian walk, in our Christian ministry, and in our understanding and experience of Jesus, that we know and that we show this love of God. Years ago, we had a French-Canadian woman just stumble into our church. And uh, she came back, she joined an Alpha, she eventually came through to faith in Christ. And at her baptism, in her testimony, she said that she was struck when she came in by what she called a love church, a love church. Some years later, a homeless person spoke to uh, Charlie and uh, Charlie told him that he was the rector at St. Aldace. And they said, oh yeah, I know that church. It's a love church. Well, I've been here 22 years and those are only the only two occasions that I can recall that ever being said. I hope that those people had sensed the love of God poured out upon us and flowing out from us. Love church, that sounds a little bit cheesy, I guess, but it's what we're meant to be. And I rather liked the fact that the really cool new HDB church plant in Bournemouth has named itself Love Church. Most of the letters of the New Testament are written to churches that are in trouble. And I rather am encouraged by that because it shows that the church is work in progress. And even those that were founded by the amazing apostles just two or three decades after Jesus were imperfect and uh, God had a lot to do in them, <laughs> strangely encouraging. But the letter to the Ephesians that we've been in for the past month or so has always been perceived as being rather different, uh, that somehow this church had it all together and therefore the letter wasn't really a correction uh, or toning things that weren't quite right, but was a very balanced and rounded sort of letter, not targeting specific issues and laying down a systematic uh, understanding of theology and church. But I'm of the opinion that the church in Ephesus had a big problem. They had a real issue and Paul, who spent three years in Ephesus, who knew the church, uh, that church better than he knew any church, he knew that not everything was right. And I think in this prayer, he is getting at what he sees to be a bit of an issue in this church. Over the last five weeks, we've considered the future church. And we've said future church needs to look like the foundational church and marked by the fivefold ministries, exercising the different gifts that reflect the nature of God, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and so on. And here's the thing, Ephesus had it all. But all the gifts and all the ministries in all the right place are not enough. If the number one thing is missing, if they're off kilter where it really matters. 
And so we see here in this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. It's the loveliest, greatest prayer, beautiful prayer. But it's Paul's burden for the Ephesian church. And I think it reflects God's burden for us, the future church. We need to understand, we need to experience, and then we need to express the heart of this prayer. Let's look at it. I just want to highlight a few of the phrases here. Verse 18, he says that this is a prayer aimed at all the saints. He says, I pray that you together with all the saints. This is not just for a few in Ephesus. This is for all the saints. And who are the saints? They're not the Catholic heroes of the faith. But when Paul uses the term saints, he means everyone who's a believer. Everyone who's a Christian, everyone who's been baptized into the church and into Christ, the ones who've been made holy by faith and by the action of God. And this is how God sees us as saints. But this is a prayer aimed at all the saints. And knowing these things that he's going to pray for, experience these things, they're not just for the hierarchy. Uh, they're not just for those who are in ordained ministry. They're not just for those who have got it all together and are really practicing what they're named after. They really are holy saints. This is a prayer for all of us. A prayer for me, and it's a prayer for you. Without exception, there are no exclusions together with all the saints, all of us, me and you, we've got to get hold of this and let this get hold of us. What's it he's praying for? Verse 16, he says, that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you. Now, when an Orthodox Jew speaks about glory, glory is actually a synonym for God. Glory was the manifest presence of God. Glory was God outshining. It's the perfections of God. It's his beauty and his majesty and his wonder, his magnificence, his effulgence and all of that stuff. It's God as God is. It's not an attribute, but it's his very being. He is glorious. And Paul is asking that God would give of himself, of God's self, to the church. Not just send, as it were, a word or wave his hand, so to speak, but out of his very being, something of who he is would be upon this church in Ephesus. And of course, that's love, because God is love. Goes on, he says, I pray that you'll be strengthened with power by his spirit in your inner being. And what Paul wants is what only God can give. That supernatural, spiritual uh, gift of the Spirit, an infusion and a grace and a revelation that comes from God. That you would be strengthened with power by his Spirit. Paul wants the mark of the church to be God. He wants them to be marked by God, to receive more of God, more of the Spirit of God. Not go on more courses and learn more information, but be marked by God. This is not a polishing up or a tuning up of what they already have in and of themselves. Paul is saying they got to get more of 
God in their lives in the church. And he says that they're to have this by the Spirit, this power in their inner being. Literally, this is God on the inside. This is God at the core or at the core. The Bible says that God knit us together in our inmost being in the womb. There at the very center of who we are. He wants God to be there, God at the center. This is not some superficial association. This is not coming to church and doing church. It's not about being religious and it's not about having an experience. It's not about feeling him in our fingers and feeling him in our toes. This is God in that secret place and that central place or at the core. Not externals, not on show, not in our ministries, not what we do, not what we project to others, but this is God at the center of who we are, his power and his glory there. psychotherapists often delve into what that place is and where it is and how it's been fashioned and formed and what traumas in the womb or what traumas in nurture have affected it and so on and they all do what Paul is saying that uh, in the Greek it's isoanthropon the inside man at the inside person of who you are God who is there who joins to your life and and awakens your soul when you give your life to him. He wants him to fill you at that place with his love. Our outer being is decaying, and yet most of our efforts go into the outer. Most of our efforts as church go into the outer, what other people see. As individuals, they go into our outer with our health and what we wear and what we do, but He's saying at the core of your being, there's got to be God. It's got to be love. Verse 17, he says, rooted and grounded in love. The roots and the foundations of our existence must be into God, who is love, into God's love. And like a tree whose tap roots go down to the underground stream and draw up all that life-giving water. We need to, as it were, send down our roots at the core of our being into God and draw up from him by his spirit, his love. I once saw some graffiti in a toilet and it said, live life loved. Live life loved. Paul says, live life from God's love, live life loved in him. And he prays that we'll have strength, verse 18, to comprehend. Interesting Greek words, but uh, literally the word there, katalambana, it means to take hold of and make your own. This isn't just intellectual. It's not just cerebral. It's not just, oh yeah, I understand God is love. Oh yeah, I know that he loves me. No, it's, it's not that. It's in your inner being. God's love is something given and God's love is something that needs to be taken. And here's the obvious point. Paul wouldn't be praying for this if they'd got it. 
Paul sees that there is something missing. There's a gap, there's a privation. Things are not quite right. They may have their doctrine right. They may have their ordering of ministry right. They may be effective in serving the needy and the poor and in mission and in looking after each other. But Paul, he can smell something's not right. And he's praying that they will be filled with love. Verse 18, he prays that they will be able to receive, not just understand, receive the breadth and length and height and depth of love and know this love that surpasses knowing. How wide and long and high and deep. North, south, east and west, God's love spans across it all. It reaches from heaven to hell and across the galaxies and through time. It's all inclusive, it's all expansive. There's nowhere you can hide from it, but you can resist it. There's nowhere where you are that God is not and no part of you where God's love is not wanting to be. You know, when Paul refers to this wide and long and high and deep, clearly in his mind is the great temple to Artemis that was in Ephesus. This was one of the seven wonders of the world when Paul was writing this. People came from around the world to see the temple of Artemis. It was the biggest building in the world at that time. And it was all marble, all white marble with these beautiful golden veins. And it was over 100 meters long and 50 meters wide. And, and it had 127 ionic columns made of marble and giant hunting friezes. Artemis was the goddess of hunting. And they were covered in gold and silver. And it took 200 years to build. And people would come and from the sea, the sun would shine on it. And it would just dazzle. It was mesmerizing. It appeared, it seemed to be the heaven on earth. That's something God had made. And so when Paul says, I pray that you know the height and depth and length and breadth. He's saying, listen, people come here to Ephesus and they look at that great big building and they drop their jaws and they gawp at it and they're amazed by its epic proportions. And what Paul is saying is you ain't seen nothing yet. This place of Ephesus, this temple, it's all about proportions. Well, you need to know the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love that surpasses knowing. And when you know that, you realize this old marble temple to Artemis is a hovel. By comparison and he says I pray that you'll know this love that surpasses knowing what a strange phrase that's the sort of phrase that get you in trouble if you put that in an essay in Oxford something you know that surpasses knowing what does he want about but Paul wants the church to understand God's love not just in a propositional doctrinal way that can be stated but in a deeply personal existential way that almost goes beyond words Literally, mind blown, beyond comprehension. Why? Because God is love. And you, as a, a finite creature, will never comprehend the infinite creator who is all love and who targets that love at you, as seen in the death of his son. It surpasses knowing. It surpasses knowing. But he wants us to know it. He wants us to experience it. He wants us to be immersed in this ocean of God's 
love. This is the point. It's not enough to just have everything all lined up in, all, in, in its right order doctrinally. It's not enough to understand uh, that we're adopted and redeemed and justified and seated with him in heavenly places. It's not enough to understand that Jesus has made the two one. There's always more. It's not enough to have all the gifts in place, the orders in place. The fivefold ministry, Paul can see, they've got all that. But this one thing is missing. And he's praying that they'll know the love of God that surpasses knowing. And that will cascade through their life towards each other and into the city. And then he says, when you get this, you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the goal. That we'll be filled not tickled, filled with the fullness of God. There's a question to ask ourselves. Am I filled with the fullness of God? I'm not. I'm filled with the flesh and ego and at times self-pity and, you know, weariness and all sorts of things that are not good and godly. We're to be filled with God, so much of God in us that it squeezes out all the rot. Derek Prince, that great Bible teacher, said it's harder for Christians to realize that God loves them than it is for them to love God. I think that's true. So often we're dealing with so many issues that we don't understand, we don't experience, and that we don't know in our knower that he loves us. And Paul wanted them to know what love is. Cliché. Sounds like a cheesy rock ballad, here we go. God wants them to know what love is. Some of you are old enough and cool enough to remember that soft rock ballad from 1984 by Foreigner. And it was a great track, it was called, I Wanna Know What Love Is. You remember that? I wanna know what love is, and so on. The lyrics go like this. There's a mountain I must climb, Feels like the world on my shoulders, but through the clouds I see love shine. Keeps me warm as life grows colder. In my life there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it again. I can't stop now. I've traveled so far to change this lonely life. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. The writer of that was a chap called Mick Jones. And he wrote it in the night. And he claimed that even as he was writing it, he realized it was more than just a personal song about wanting intimate relationship and love with others. He said that he knew that there was something spiritual in it. In fact, he wrote it in the night and then he woke up his fiance and uh, he said, I've, I've got this song. And he shared the lyrics with her. And she said, what do you mean you want to know what love is? We're about to get married. He said, oh, no, there's more than that. I'm writing about something else. And talking about this song, he said that it took on a life of its own. He felt it was a kind of universal song that expressed something deep, something gnawing at the heart of humankind, that they were calling out to know what love is. And he said he felt it was almost a gospel song. And so he wanted a choir to come and sing it, a gospel choir. And uh, those of you who remember, there's a, choir, a gospel choir who sing it. And he tells that when he brought the choir in, they did a few takes of the song 
and it was good, but he said it was a bit tentative. And then he says they all got around the band, the choir, they held hands and they prayed for God to come and they prayed the Lord's Prayer. He said it was such a moment. He said everyone was in tears and then they sang and it nailed it. I do wonder if God didn't bless that song. Why? Because God wants us to know what love is. We can see it in love and blood poured out at Calvary and his son. We know objectively that in time and space, he has revealed his love in Jesus Christ. But the reality of that event 2,000 years ago becomes an experienced event in our hearts by the Spirit when we receive more of God in our lives and we can fully comprehend and know beyond knowing that we are loved. I want to know what love is. Paul wanted them to know what love is. God wanted them to know what love is. And did they? Well, let me finish with this. 20 years later or so, maybe 30 years later, the Apostle John had a revelation. John was based at the church in Ephesus, as was Mary, Jesus' mother. And John, the beloved, he was the apostle of love. And it must have broken his heart when he had this vision on the Isle of Patmos in which the Lord Jesus gives him a word and says, this is for the church in Ephesus. And he commends their hard work and their service and their suffering and that they tested false teachers and that they got their doctrine sound. And then he says, Revelation 2.4, I got this against you. There's just something not right. You've forsaken your first love. And I think Paul saw it all those years before, and Paul prayed for it, but they never got it. And years later, the church looked pretty good, but there wasn't much love there. God wants us to know what love is, his love, by his spirit, revealed in his son. And then he wants us to show what love is. Amen.